I want to welcome you once again to our sermon series that we've titled True Worship. We're asking some very vital questions in this sermon series, aren't we? Questions like, what is worship? Who is a worshiper? Why does it matter? How should we worship? Those are essential questions that we're asking in this series. And we've already covered quite a, ground, quite a bit of ground in these last several weeks. If you've, if you've been here with us, you know we have. If you've missed any of these messages, I encourage you, like Brandon did, go to our website. The messages that have been given in this series thus far, you can find them there on our website. Or you can subscribe to our podcast through, through iTunes. Um, what we've dis- here's one thing that we've discovered. That worship, according to the Bible, is trusting something supremely with your mind, loving something supremely with your heart, and serving and obeying something supremely with your hands. So that's the definition of worship that we have been working with. If you were here last Sunday, our focus was, all right, let's just take the first parts of this definition and how do we worship God with our minds. We're going to continue with looking at that very thing because it is the starting point of all true worship. Look, we cannot love supremely. We can't love something supremely with our heart and we can't serve and obey something supremely with our hands that we do not know with our mind. And so the mind is the starting point of all true worship. If we are going to worship God, we've got to know the truth about him. We need to know who he is, who we are in relation to him. And we need to know all about his work of redemption. You know, in my opinion, the greatest battle that any of us fight in life is the battle in between our two ears, the battle in our mind. Our greatest enemy, I believe, is our stinking thinking. Amen? Here's a quote from uh, Charles Swindoll, and I think he has a, a great way of putting this. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than the education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable, remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. If you were to look up attitude in the dictionary, an attitude is a settled way of thinking about something. We're talking about thoughts. We're talking about perspective. We're talking about how we interpret and view the life that we're living in in our circumstances and the things that come our way. 
So we're going to consider this morning, how can we win the battle for our minds? If this is the greatest battle that I think we all face, how do we win it? How can we have the right attitude, the right perspective through the ups and downs of life? We're going to allow Romans 8 to be our guide this morning. It's a passage that Ron read earlier. I'm actually going to read the verses that lead up to what Ron read. So let's pray, and then we will look at, many say, the greatest chapter of the greatest book in the Bible, Romans Romans 8. Let's pray. Lord, we are in a battle for our minds. It is a great battle, but we know that through you we can win it, we can overcome it, we can be victorious. Lord, as we consider Romans 8, the wonderful things that are contained in this amazing passage, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand how important our thoughts are, and how we can think rightly about you, about ourselves, and about the people in the, around us in the world we live in. We need your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, as Brandon said, to renew our minds, to transform our thinking. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me read Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. They're on the screen. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here's what I want to focus on from this passage this morning. Worshiping with your God requires humility. Worshiping God with your mind requires training. Worshiping God with your mind requires taking every thought captive. So, Let's look at these, starting with worshiping God with your mind requires humility. You know, from this passage in Romans and just from the experience of life, we know that before we come to Christ and his spirit comes to live inside of us, our minds are set on the flesh. 
What does it mean that your mind is set on the flesh? It means that your mind is set on sin. Your mind is set on sinful things. In other words, we think just the way the unbelieving world thinks. We emphasize what the world thinks is important. We pursue what it pursues. And we disregard God and his will. That's what it means to have your mind set on the flesh. It's having your mind set on sinful patterns of of thinking that lead to sinful patterns of behaving. I know before my life really became dedicated to Christ, my mind was on, you know, where's the party at and where are the good-looking girls at? That's where my mind was set and focused. And that kind of thinking led to a lot of emptiness, a lot of meaninglessness, if that's a word, a lot of hurts for me and for other people. Romans 8 says that a mind set on the flesh leads to a life of death. Did you hear that? You got to believe this right here. If you don't believe it leads to a life of death, this isn't going to matter too much to you. You're not going to be convinced. If we believe the way the world thinks, if we go after what the world goes after, if we ignore God and his will, we are going to wreck ourselves, we're going to wreck our relationships, and we're going to be unable to please God and relate to him. That's the kind of death we're talking about. In fact, if we set our minds on the things of the flesh, we're going to be powerless. We're going to be enslaved by our sinful nature, and we're going to be powerless to rebel against it. It's going to direct us. It's going to call the shots. We're not even going to want to rebel against it. And if we did want to rebel against it, we, would be, we wouldn't have the power to do so. And then, of course, when Jesus returns and judges the world, there's going to be condemnation for the person who has set their mind on the things of the flesh. And the result will be eternal death in hell. That's why the battle of the mind is such a significant, serious thing. And so, if we are going to worship God with our minds, it takes humility. It takes us recognizing and admitting that our way of thinking apart from God hasn't worked. It's only led to jealousy. It's only led to anger. It's only led to discord. It's only led to pride and selfishness and idolatry. It is recognizing that God's wisdom is the wisdom we need for right living, and that takes humility. That he knows how things are supposed to work because he created them. He designed them. He knows how they are to operate. It takes humility to admit that you don't know but God does, that he is the ultimate source of wisdom. You know, many people have not submitted their life to Christ. You might be here this morning. Anytime you get a group of people like this gathered together, chances are there are people that have not submitted and surrendered to Christ. There's a good chance that right here this morning are people who have not surrendered and have come in humility to Jesus for the source of all wisdom and right living. 
There are individuals who profess faith in Christ, but if you were to ask them if they were a Christian, they would say yes, but in the practice of everyday living, they make decisions as if Christ doesn't exist. They rely on their own intellect. They rely on their own planning. They rely on their own resources, their own knowledge, their own wisdom. They go to Jesus from time to time for some tips and for some advice, but that's not worshiping God with your mind. I've said it before, I'll say it again, Jesus doesn't want to be your consultant. He doesn't want to be your consultant. Chances are there are people in this room that are interacting with Jesus in a way that makes Jesus their consultant. Are you one of them? Let's just be real. He wants to be our Lord. He wants to be king over every single aspect of your life. Your money, how you handle your sexuality, your possessions, your time, your marriage, your family. He wants to be Lord over all. Are you following Jesus or have you asked Jesus to follow you? That's a question I've asked before, but it's always good to circle back around to. Are you following Jesus or have you asked Jesus to follow you? What does your life say? How do the decisions you make reflect that you are humbly following after him? How do your relationships reflect that you're imitating him in his love? So... If we are going to worship God with our minds, we have to come in complete surrender to God in humility, recognizing that we are so limited. Secondly, worshiping God with your mind requires training. So when we come to Christ in complete surrender and say, you are the captain of this ship, does our stinking thinking just go away? Does, no, it doesn't, does it? I, it's too bad, right? But it doesn't. God, it just, yeah, it just doesn't. And so our minds, it's a process, and, and they need to be renewed over time. It doesn't happen in an instance. Now, another question is, can we just sit back and relax and just let God do his thing to rewire our brains The answer is no to that as well. Look, old thinking patterns die hard and they die slowly. Our minds have a tendency to continue to dwell on the same things with the same skewed perspectives as we had before. And although although the the Holy Spirit is going to do the heavy lifting, it doesn't mean that we can just sit back passive expecting God to do all the work. So how do we train our mind to rid ourselves of our stinking thinking? How do we take our mind to the gym to work it out so that more and more we have the mind of Christ? Well, in verse 5, Paul says that we have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to set your mind on something? Well, it means to focus intently on something. It means to be preoccupied with something. It means to 
have your attention and your imagination just totally captured by something. That's what it means to set your mind on something. And so if we are going to set our mind on the things of the Spirit, we must, with our minds, focus intently, be preoccupied with, be totally consumed and captured by the things of the Spirit. And that takes Spirit-empowered discipline and training on our part. Now, let me ask you this question. What are the things of the Spirit that our minds should be set on? Well, I think Romans 8 has the answer for us. Romans 8, if you were to look at the first verse, it starts off with the bang, doesn't it? It tells us that in Christ, those who are connected to Christ through faith, there is no condemnation. No condemnation is a legal term. It means to be free from any debts or any penalty. A person who is in Christ Jesus through faith is not under any condemnation from God. One thought we need to train our minds to dwell on is this. God has nothing against us if we are in Christ Jesus. He has nothing against us. He finds no fault in us. He has nothing to punish us for. Jesus has taken all of our faults on himself, all of our condemnation on himself, and was punished, and he was rejected in our place. So that there is nothing but acceptance and welcome left from God to to us. It's remarkable. Verse 2 tells us about another thing of the Spirit. Another thought we must train our minds to believe, to understand, and fully embrace. And it is this. We are no longer in bondage to sin. The law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. By law, what Paul means here in this instance is the power. The power of the Spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death. Before we were, before when we were apart from Christ, we had no power to, to live in a holy, righteous way. We were slaves to sin. Paul will tell you, if you go back to Romans 6, that's how he describes it, as slavery. We were powerless to overcome it. But Christ, with the Spirit's empowerment, with him, with Christ, we can say no to sin. You, anytime you're tempted, you have to remind yourself, I do not have to obey this. I can rebel against this. I am no longer a slave to sin. When you are tempted to lust, you can say no to it. I have the power to say no to it. I don't have to obey this. We now have the power to say no to gluttony, to say no to lying and cheating, to say no to pride. We now have the power to say no to worry. We have the power to say no to selfish ambition. You can say no to these things. Romans 8 goes on to mention in verse 5 that there's not only no condemnation for those who are in Christ, there's not only a new power to rebel against sin, but those who believe have also been adopted into God's family and God has become their father, which makes the person whose faith is in Christ a son, a child of God, and an heir. 
And this is another truth that we have to preach to ourselves. We have been adopted into God's family as his own child. Why does this truth mean so much? Why does it mean so much? Well, let me tell you, and this is why it's something you want to fill your minds with. Being a child of God means that you have God as your father, which means you have God's protection over your life. You, got, you have God's presence. You have God's provision. You have God's concern. You have what the best of earthly fathers are only an earthly shadow of. This great reality that God is, is our father and he, and we are his children. In verse 18, Romans 8 goes on to say what we will inherit as God's heirs. We will inherit a redeemed body in the redeemed creation. That's the inheritance that we have to look forward to. A life that Paul says in our passage that is so amazing, a future that is so amazing that our present sufferings can't even begin to compare with this glorious future that we have in store for us. Can you see why this truth embedded into our minds is so important? It completely changes our perspective and how we live our life in the here and now. It continues, verse 26. We don't know what to pray. We don't know what, when we don't know what to pray, when we don't know what to do, when we are overwhelmed, when we don't know what decision to make and we're confused, this passage tells us that the Spirit is interceding for us and prays exactly what we need. And God always responds in the affirmative. God the Father always responds with a yes to the, the, the God the Spirit's request. Because the Spirit always prays in accordance with the will of God. The Spirit prays to the Father on, on our behalf. That's just remarkable. Our troubles, our trials, every, details of our, every detail of our lives, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. We are prayed over. We are cared for. We are not forgotten. We are not ignored. The Spirit knows your deepest desires. It knows your truest needs. And it is praying for you. And then in verse 28, Paul says that here's another, th here's another thing of the Spirit that we need to set our minds on. That God is working all things together for the good who, of those who love him. I, I don't know if there's, uh, I mean, this truth is just so powerful for our minds to be set on. The things we experience, the good and the bad, the highs and the low, God is sovereignly using them, using them all to make us more like Jesus. And then in verse 31, Paul concludes with this thing of the spirit that our mind needs to be on. God is for us. God is for you. And if God is for you, who or what can be against you? And if God did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things through Christ? 
If our brother Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father making an intercession for us, who can bring a charge against us? Furthermore, if God has loved us so extravagantly, even to the point of giving up his son, is there anything that he will allow to separate us from his love? Of course not. Absolutely, positively not. These are the things that you have, these are the things of the spirit that you have to set your mind on. You have to train yourself to focus intently on these things, to be preoccupied with them, to have your attention and your imagination captured by them. And what is the result of the person who is able to have their mind be set on the spirit, the things of the spirit. What's the result? The answer is in verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but, the, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Do you have life and peace in your life? Do you? If not, you're probably not very good at setting your mind on the things of the spirit. Life and peace doesn't mean an easy life, right? Life and peace means a strength, a, a power to have joy even in the midst of very difficult things. Because notice what the passage says. Life and peace in things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness. Peril, is that right? Or sword. It takes training to set your minds on things of the spirit. It takes discipline. And many people in this room might not want to put the work into it. You want life and peace, but you're not willing to, to train. How are you intentionally setting your mind on things of the Spirit? I believe, and I'm saying this out loud because my flesh doesn't want to do it. So I'm saying it so I can be held accountable. I believe that the Spirit wants me to memorize all of Romans 8. My flesh does not want to take the time to do it. But I'm saying it so you guys can ask me, how's that going? Right? And if there's anybody else who wants to do it with me, I'd love a buddy or two or three or however many are in this room. All right? That's how God's leading me to take my mind to the gym. How is he leading you? What is your plan to partner with the Spirit to develop the mind of Christ in you? Number three, lastly, Worshiping God with your mind requires taking every thought captive. You know, uh, setting your mind on things of the spirit, that, that's, a, that's a choice that takes intentionality and it takes planning. But our minds fire thoughts into, uh, you know, th- or I should say thoughts fire into our minds all the time, right? We're largely not in control of what initially gets fired into our heads, our minds aren't there, mind of their own. And there's always this constant dialogue inside of us, isn't there? There's always this inner voice, this inner conversation that we have with ourselves all the time. Many people aren't aware of it. 
because they really don't take, they're so busy doing and going that they really don't t- take time to examine and think about what that inner voice is saying to them. And so they're being directed by it, but they're not really aware of how they're being directed by it because they never carve out that time for introspection. Many of us are aware of this inner voice inside of us, but for us, it often works as a critic. That's how that inner voice works in our lives. It's, it's like this inner critic that is just relentless. So what, we, what do we do with this, uh, this internal dialogue that's constantly running on, you know, inside of us? 2 Corinthians 10 um, addresses this, I believe. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, what he's doing, he's, he's addressing this group of people in Corinth who were rejecting the gospel he was preaching, rejecting his authority as an apostle. And this is what Paul states in regards to this group. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. What Paul is saying to this group is that he had a power, and it was the power of the Spirit that he that was going to enable him to tear down his opponent's wrong thinking, that it was the Spirit's power that would enable Paul to make their thinking collapse so that he would be able to take their thoughts captive for Christ so that then they would be able to think rightly about the gospel, about Paul's authority as an apostle, so that they would become obedient to the truth that, you know, about Christ. So how do we apply this to ourselves? How can we take our own thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? First, we have to capture our thoughts and examine them. And that's why what we're talking about in adult Sunday school is so important that we carve time to be silent before God, to, by the Holy Spirit's power, consider what has been the inner dialogue of my, heart, my mind, and when you capture something, what do you do? You grab a hold of it. Think of when an army captures um, somebody of, you know, on the enemy's side. They capture the enemy. They take it to a place where they can interrogate it and examine it. So we gotta, we got to take hold of our thoughts, and we got to really look at them. What am I thinking? What am I believing? What are the messages that I'm telling myself? The next step then is to ask the Holy Spirit to dismantle and destroy anything that is not in alignment with the things of the Spirit. Ask ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you and to completely destroy that in your mind. To let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Right? There's an old saying that you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop a bird from building a nest in your hair. Thoughts are that way, aren't they? They just come in. And we often can't, I mean, they just fire in. So our choice is how we respond to those thoughts. Are we going to engage them? Are we going to set our minds on them? This is where many of us go wrong. 
these thoughts fire in, and we start entertaining them. We start engaging with them. We let these thoughts take us to places that don't have anything to do with the things of the Spirit. Another good way to discern whether the thoughts that are firing into your head are thoughts that are in alignment with the Spirit or with the flesh is to consider their fruits. So if you are to entertain this thought that you're examining, what will it lead to? Is it going to lead to life and peace for you to entertain this thought right now? Or if, if it's going to lead to life and peace, chances are it's from the Spirit. Chances are it's in obedience to Christ. But if you were to entertain this thought, and if you were to engage with it, and it's going to take you to a place of fear, anxiety, shame, guilt, condemnation, confusion, despair, jealousy, rage, envy, guess what? It's probably not in alignment with the things of the Spirit. And it's probably not from God. Most... <laughs> Yeah, a pastor by the name of Paul Tripp, who has a fantastic mustache. I almost had a picture of him up here for you. It's, I'm jealous, and I'm thinking about seeing if I can grow one like his. But it's really full and thick. Don't you think it would look good? I think it would. I think Mary probably thinks it would look awesome. He writes this. No one, and I'll close with this, no one is more influential in your life than you are. Because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. People laugh at that statement, but I'm really quite serious. You're in an unending, incredibly important conversation with your soul every moment of every day. You interpret or you talk to you analyze what's going on inside and outside of you. You talk to yourself about the past. You talk to yourself about the future. And you talk to yourself about what you're experiencing in the present. Obviously, this is an internal conversation. If you had this conversation aloud, they would probably put you into a ward. But that's, check this out, but that's why it's so dangerous. You often don't even realize that you're saying things to yourself, but you are. You're saying things to you that will shape your desires, actions, and theology. What are you saying to you about God and your circumstances? Do your words stimulate faith, hope, and courage? Or does your talk stimulate doubt, dis discouragement, and fear? Do you remind yourself that God is near? Or do you reason with yourself that given your circumstances, he must be distant? Here's the question. How wholesome, faith-driven, and Christ-centered is the conversation that you have with yourself every day? Do you remind yourself of your need? Do you point yourself once again to the beauty and practicality of God's grace? Do you tell yourself to run toward him in those moments when you feel like running from him? No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. What will you say to you today? And he gives these four questions. Here's your homework assignment. I was going to play the song, but I chose otherwise. Lauren Daigle's album just dropped. I just wanted to say that. I've been waiting all week just to say it dropped. Anyways, you need to check out the song You Say. Watch the video, lyric video. I've been 
I've had that album on repeat this whole week as I'm writing this sermon. It's just been so good. And you need to ask these questions. Um, we will email them to you. Here's the, the five questions. Would you be comfortable with someone listening to a recording of your internal conversation? What are some things you say to you that stimulate hope, faith, and confidence? What are some things you say to you that stimulate fear, anxiety, and discouragement? How can you become a more biblical counselor to your own soul? How can you counsel others to talk more biblically to themselves? Hmm. That's your homework. And find a quiet place to go before the Lord with these questions. And listen to that song, You Say, by Lauren Daigle, whose album just dropped. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for you, that you have come to free us from our stinking thinking, that you love us so much, that we are rich in you. Lord, I pray that if there is a person sitting in this room who has not come in complete surrender to you as the Lord of their life, Jesus, that you would so prompt them, draw them to yourself, move them. That they would say, come in, Jesus. Come, take up residence in me. I, my stinking thinking hasn't worked out. I've messed up. Come, give me life and peace. Teach me to live for you and to follow your ways. I pray that that would be their prayer. And Lord, for those of us who have made that decision but yet our souls are so prone to wander. Lord, draw us back. Bring us to a place where we take this seriously, that we're willing to partner with you and do hard work of, of partnering with you to have our minds trained to be set on the things of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would empower these people this week. That when, those, when the birds of worry and guilt and shame are flying above their head, that you would give them the power to not allow them to build a nest in their hair, that they wouldn't entertain and engage those thoughts. Lord, give us life and peace for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.